Yo, 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 all. Welcome to the Quick Hook Podcast, Episode 5. I am your illustrious podcast host, Andy Francis, joined, as always, by my lovely creature of a wife. Stunning co-host, Laura Francis. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the number one chica to end all chicas, HLF, Hopperly Francis. What's up, kiddo? are you now harper you're about 14 months hi. old hi harper do you want to say oh, wow <laughs> it's our new <laughs> it's our new word she's learned wow so today we'll be chronicling uh the life this will be the first part actually of a two-part series on lefty O'Doul, a man who was born and raised and was a legend in san francisco california a place where we went not long ago and returned from a trip to. What was your favorite part of San Francisco? Um, I would have to say Alcatraz, yeah. honestly. It yeah. was just like beautiful views, amazing, morbid history. Ugh. Scary. I mean, fascinating. I hate to say it, but like every inch of that place is interesting in a very yeah. dark way. Oh, the um, the isolation cells. Yeah, solitary. Black, the and the whole... guy looking for the button as his game. Yeah. Oh. What was the button on? The the button. It, it was, was on his jacket or something. Yeah, and then he would take it off. He'd spin around real fast and throw the button, and then he'd get on his hands and knees and try to find it. Find he'd it do in that the dark for hours. It was the only way he had to occupy yeah. his time. Oh. <laughs> God. <laughs> Today it's kind of a gloomy Tuesday. We're uh, doing that weird kind of pre-hurricane day you're just kind of waiting on the storm see what's going to happen yeah it's pretty much going to miss us but yeah i have a question to ask about lefty o'doul please is he a left-handed he was indeed he was a southpaw and guess what of irish descent as well oh fun fact me and andy are also left-handed yeah and what's harper going to be is the question i see her like she'll grab the tennis ball and she throws it with both arms i know i know i guess she's gonna be an ambidextrous little baby We'll have to see. Just smack her right hand if she ever tries to pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll go ahead and get into it now with the life of Lefty O'Doul, a man whose name is legendary not only in San Francisco, but also in the land of the rising sun. For reasons you'll soon find out. All right, let's do it. Lefty O'Doul was born Frank O'Doul on March 4th, 1897 in San Francisco, California. That, of course, makes him a Pisces, which doesn't matter at all. Frank's grandfather was a Frenchman named Augustus Udu. He was born in Louisiana to French parents. He fell in love with this Irish gal named Catherine Fitzgerald. And Catherine really wanted to have an Irish name. So she found this Frenchman named Udu, and she convinced the guy to put a nice Irish apostrophe after the O in his name. And so all of a sudden, Udu became O'Doul, and she got her Irish name. A few years later, Lefty was born in Butchertown. Butchertown is the area around Hunter's Point in San Francisco. It's a lot further south than like the the downtown city proper. Butchertown is actually where all of the wealthy residents in the 1860s in San Francisco basically forced the meatpacking industry to move to when they outlawed the slaughter of animals within San Francisco city limits. 
Odul came from a family of butchers and grew up pretty rough and tumble. Uh, like most American cities at this time, San Francisco had its segregated neighborhoods. So like, for instance, the Irish were in Butchertown and the Italians were in North Beach. And, uh, you know, Lefty as a kid would go around different parts of town, get into scrapes. He kind of had to learn how to defend himself at an early age. He was a sandy-haired kid. He had bright blue eyes. He had a fair complexion. He had an interesting childhood, if you ask me. Uh, Butchertown at this time was not really what you might think of if you're thinking of San Francisco. Like There were no trolley cars. It wasn't an urban area as much. Actually, Butchertown at this time, you, you might see like cattle being herded down the street. If you're walking down the street, you might look over and there's cowboys hanging out on the corner on horseback. So it's kind of just a cool dichotomy, you know, a couple miles up the road. It's like the busiest, most developed city in the West. So maybe if we try, we can kind of get an idea of what Lefty's childhood was like. He uh, was a working class kid. His father was a union butcher. They were Irish Catholic. He went to public school. He ran around the street with his buddies. He had a tight knit family. He had a happy home. You know, it certainly wasn't a life of luxury, but compared to like John McGraw and Rube Foster's childhoods, or last two profile subjects, basically it's like leave it to Beaver. I mean, he's relatively lucky. Little Frank O'Doul had just turned nine years old when the earthquake hit San Francisco in 1906, a scene that would be just unimaginable, I think, to most any of us. 80% of the city destroyed. Lefty later described walking block after block of Butchertown, which was devastated, he remembered, quote, the beds hanging out of the houses where the walls had all fallen away, unquote. Odul's family was lucky and that the house where they rented was able to be repaired and they moved back into it. But man, I don't know, earthquakes. Like we're sitting here waiting on this hurricane. Probably you shouldn't rank natural disasters from like least favorite. But man, it probably take 10 hurricanes for every one earthquake. No kidding, I mean, and at least the hurricanes, you have a little bit of warning, you know? You get to board up the windows, play hide-and-go-seek in the dark. It's a randomness of the earthquake. I just can't take it. Little Frankie enrolled at Bayview Grammar School, where he met a woman who would have a surprising impact on his life, a teacher at the school named Rose Stalls. And I'll just say, sitting here across the continent 120 years later, that Rose Stalls really seems like she was a heck of a teacher. And these teachers, man, they can find a way into your heart sometimes, can't they? Rose Stalls, by her own account, was not much interested in sports. She actually more enjoyed theater and literature. But she saw that there weren't enough men working at the school to serve as coaches. And without the coach, there could be no team. So wanting to give her students the opportunity to play, she learned the rules of baseball and she became the coach for Bayview Grammar School. When he was 15 years old, O'Doul would lead Bayview to the San Francisco City Grammar School Finals. You can imagine the thrill. And for the rest of his life... Lefty would remain grateful to Miss Stalls, saying, quote, She taught me the essential fundamentals of the game. She taught me to pitch, field, and hit. Miss Stalls alone is responsible for my success in baseball. Unquote. Which, you know, if we're being honest, it's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but it kind of reflects, uh, well, obviously the impact that Rose Stalls had on Lefty O'Doul's life, but also another trait of Lefty, which is that he just had a great personality. Um, that was apparent ever since he was a small boy. He was likable. He was charming. He was humble, kind, funny, interesting, curious. Uh, and it's really refreshing, you know, if you're a pro sports fan, you know that most athletes have the personality of drywall. <laughs> Lefty O'Doul is the kind of guy who never met a stranger. And he's going to be making friends all the time, all over the world for the rest of his life. 
remembering decades later to thank the middle school teacher who first gave him the opportunity to play baseball. That's just the kind of guy Lefty O'Doul was, and personally, I find that very charming. O'Doul left school after the eighth grade, and that's a move that I was actually lobbying my own parents to make in my case. And mom and dad, if you're listening, which I know, dad, you're not, but it worked out pretty well for Lefty O'Doul, I'm just saying. Actually, little Frank was not thrilled about leaving school, but his father insisted that his son learn the family trade. So really, as just a boy, O'Doul became a card-carrying member of the Amalgamated Meat Cutters Union Local 508, working six days a week, herding sheep and cutting meat for the Don Biggs Company there in Bayview. And for a while, you know, that looked like that was going to be his life. Nothing wrong with that. You know, he was a union man. He was working full time. He got a little girlfriend he was seeing. He wasn't a baseball player, but he was Frank O'Doul, the young butcher. But fate took a turn when he was 19 years old. Frank's father convinced the lad to join the San Francisco parlor of the native sons of the Golden West. I guess back in the day they had a lot of time on their hands. So they didn't give a shit if things took 10 minutes to say. The native sons of the Golden West was a not at all pretentious fraternal organization dedicated to preserving the history of California and blah, blah, blah. The Native Sons can claim all kinds of really cool, very hip alumni like Earl Warren and Richard Nixon. They also, in Lefty's day, had a baseball team. But even after he joined the Native Sons, he didn't want to spend his Sundays playing baseball. He wanted to hang out with his girl. But one Sunday he went to go call on his lady and I'll let Lefty explain, quote, It seems that this particular charmer liked another fellow also. I had an engagement to take her to a picnic one Sunday, but the other kid got there first. That left me with an afternoon on my hands, unquote. So young Frank accompanies his father to a native son's baseball game, and wouldn't you know it, the team's scheduled pitcher was ill. The coach of the team, Jack Regan, had been trying to get Lefty to play, and after seeing him in the stands, he convinces him to take the mound. And what does he do? Of course, it's like a movie. He throws a complete game victory. Uh, he's the star of the game. He gets the bug to stay on with the team. He proceeds to be their star pitcher and the best hitter for the rest of the season. He throws multiple shutouts on route to leading South San Francisco to a 13-0 record. So the South San Fran chapter of the Native Sons meets up with the team representing the Stanford chapter, who were 13-1. The championship game is attended by over 3,000 people, so that tells you this league you know, had a pretty good following. I wish I could understand the effect that Lefty O'Doul had on people. Remember again that he had joined the team like halfway through the season. But in the championship game, before his first at-bat in the second inning, the game is halted so the fans can come onto the field and present him with a floral horseshoe for good luck. Like, how lovable was this guy? Just once I want to walk into a place and have people just present me with some kind of a topiary floral arrangement as a token of appreciation just for being me. His team would lose the game, but Frank would perform admirably, collecting three hits, a stolen base, and pitching into the seventh inning. His talents stood out, and by this time he had been noticed by the scouts working for a team that is nothing short of a San Francisco legend itself, a team that at that time was about as good as you could get outside of the major leagues. Frank O'Doul had attracted the attention of the San Francisco Seals, and in 1917, the hometown kid would make the jump and don the iconic Seals uniform. The San Francisco Seals were as important a franchise outside of the major leagues as there ever was. They were charter members of the Pacific Coast League in 1903, the PCL, which after some interruptions is actually still operating today. 
And the Pacific Coast League with the Los Angeles Angels, teams in Oakland, Portland, Seattle, Albuquerque. Uh, that was the big time for much of baseball history. If you live basically west of St. Louis, there was a lot of great play and great players in PCL history. And when major league teams would barnstorm on the West Coast, nobody would bat an eye if the major leaguers would lose to a PCL team. The PCL was probably kind of like a quad A league, somewhere in between AAA and the majors. And like I said, if you're a kid growing up in California or Oregon, those are the big leagues. Those are the big leaguers. You might read about the Red Sox or the Yankees in the newspaper, but most likely you'll never see them play. However, you could see Ted Williams or you could see Joe DiMaggio because both those guys actually got their start in the Pacific Coast League. Williams for his hometown uh, San Diego Padres and DiMaggio for the hometown San Francisco Seals. In fact, eight years before DiMaggio's major league hitting streak enraptured the country, his 61-game hitting streak as a 19-year-old with the Seals captivated the West Coast. The PCL was a big deal, and in his first year there, Lefty was a bit of a fledgling hen, although he was trying to make it as a two-way player, so you have to admit that that alone is impressive. He was in center field for opening day, but his lack of experience soon showed the San Francisco Chronicle described one of his attempts to catch a fly ball as, quote, resembling a small boy trying to sprinkle salt on the tail of a sparrow, unquote, which that description, man, like I've mentioned on here before, I, I don't really don't like to romanticize the past too much because things really weren't better. Like the average 10 year old at this time was probably a Marlboro man with a good factory job, but the sports writing uh, probably was better. Lefty went back and forth as an outfielder and a pitcher in the PCL until early May 1918. He was receiving spotty playing time in both roles, but then he had one of the finest weeks in the history of the San Francisco Seals. On May 3rd, he threw a masterpiece, a 13-inning complete game against Sacramento, and their star Harry Walter, a major leaguer for seven seasons, a major figure in California baseball himself, uh, later the head baseball coach at Stanford for 30 years. Frank struck out Walter four times, and the last time was in the bottom of the 12th after he had intentionally walked the bases loaded to get to him. Whoa. Here's the thing. Two days later, Seals pitcher Chief Johnson, and guess what ethnicity Chief was? But Chief was unable to take his turn in the rotation, so the 21-year-old kid stepped up on one day of rest and kept the game close until he tired in the ninth. And that kind of thing will definitely endear you to your teammates. And O'Doul spent the rest of the season pitching full-time, and he would do so with great success, throwing five shutouts. The young man's talent and reputation were such that after the season, he was drafted by the American League franchise in New York, a team that a few years before had changed their name from the Highlanders to the Yankees. This exciting time for Frank O'Doul was hit hard by a sudden tragedy while he was serving a winter Navy commitment in the shipyards of San Francisco, as he said himself, quote, sad thing is my dad died in 1918 while I was in the Navy, unquote. Eugene O'Doul passed away from tuberculosis at the age of 46 years old, and it was a dear loss for his young son. In March of 1919, Lefty O'Doul departed San Francisco for Jacksonville, Florida, to join the Yankees at spring training. Now, these Yankees had some good players, people you may have heard of, like Frank Home Run Baker, Carl Mays, Roger Peckinpah. They also had Wally Pipp manning first base. And Pipp is kind of a, a good analogy for this team generally. Wally Pipp is the guy who famously 
had to come out of a game because of an injury one time, and it allowed his backup, a guy named Lou Gehrig, to substitute in. And Gehrig would continue to hold that spot instead of Pip for 2,130 consecutive games afterwards. And like I said, that's kind of what these Yankees are at this time generally. They're sort of the placeholders before the arrival of the real greatness that we all associate with that franchise. These Yankees had never won a pennant. Babe Ruth at this time is a pitcher for the Red Sox. They do have a great manager, a guy named Miller Huggins. Kind of a bookish, high-strung guy, but every bit as competitive as a John McGraw. One of the biggest stories in Yankees spring training camp was the apparent emergence of two exciting young rookies, Lefty O'Doul and his competition for an outfield spot, George Hallis, who wasn't far away actually from founding the Chicago Bears and the National Football League. Hallis has just been named the MVP of the Rose Bowl two months prior to Yankees camp. He and O'Doul impressed Miller Huggins in camp, but they end up playing only sporadically for the Yankees in 1919. Lefty does get his first major league hit off Walter Johnson, no less, and he has the opportunity to pitch and hit, but most of his appearances come in blowouts, and the Yankees finish in third place. However, in the offseason, after the 1919 season, baseball would experience a seismic shift and a transaction that honestly would like change the country. The Red Sox sold outfielder Babe Ruth to the Yankees so the owner of the Red Sox could finance production of the great hit musical No No Nanette, which of course we all look back on now as justified and a great example of sound decision making. The hype around Ruth becoming the Yankees right fielder was intense. Lefty had actually faced Ruth three times in a winter league before the season, and he struck out the big man twice, although he did allow a homer in the third at bat. Alas, now, as the Yankees are moving up in the baseball world, Lefty is left behind. Even as scouts and sports writers rave about his raw athleticism and unparalleled speed, he receives even fewer at-bats, only appearing in 13 games in 1920. He's only given the opportunity to pitch three and two-thirds innings in the entire season. O'Doul would later tell the story many times over the years that in 1920, he and another bench player, Chick Fuster, snuck off to the horse races the morning of a doubleheader that they thought for sure was going to be rained out. And so Lefty and Chick are returning home from the racetrack, and they hear a radio playing the second game of the doubleheader, and Lefty's stomach drops as he obviously assumes they're going to face, you know, heavy fines, suspension, maybe even getting kicked off the team for just skipping a doubleheader. But they return to Yankee Stadium and they find that Miller Huggins didn't even notice they weren't there. Frank's winning personality did ingratiate him with his new teammate Ruth, and together they would travel to Coney Island, they would golf frequently. Ruth showed O'Doul something of the high life, taking him to speakeasies and giving him the opportunity to mingle with celebrities. O'Doul is not yet making baseball history, but he is constantly in the background of it. His last appearance in 1920 was as a pinch hitter in the game that saw Ray Chapman killed by a Carl Mays fastball. It was clear that Yankees manager Miller Huggins did not have an especial fondness for lefty O'Doul. One man who did was Harry Sparrow, whose role with the Yankees in those days probably would give the title of general manager to now in the modern game. Before the 1920 season, there were a lot of rumors that the Yankees would trade O'Doul because of his apparent talent but lack of role on their roster. O'Doul was compared by scouts to Ty Cobb, and Cobb himself was the player manager of the Tigers at this time. 
He said that his club would be picking up Lefty in a second if Huggins decided to cut him from their roster. Sparrow declared, quote, If this club ever trades Odul or lets him get away, it will be over my dead body, unquote. Unfortunately for Sparrow, he was eerily prescient in making that statement, but not, I think, in the way that he intended. Sparrow died of a heart attack at the end of 1920, and Lefty was jettisoned from the Yankees roster soon thereafter. He found himself back home with the Seals for the 1921 season. O'Doul had injured his shoulder with the Yankees in 1919, and it would affect his arm for the rest of his career. He couldn't go long in games, and he had to have extra days of rest. But he still had a dominant season on the mound. He went 25-9 with a 2-3-9 ERA. And as a pinch hitter and an outfielder, he hit 338. That is pretty unbelievable. And Lefty was a legitimate celebrity on the West Coast. He also brought his new threads back with him, and he developed a reputation as a real fashionista. The San Francisco Chronicle labeled him the Bo Brummel Southpaw. Bo Brummel, of course, being the uh, 19th century Regency era English socialite, of course, and the uh, close friend of the future king, George IV. It's a good reference. It's a good reference. The Yankees still held Lefty's major league option, and after such a ridiculous season in the PCL, they exercised that option. But Miller Huggins still nurtured his distaste or his grudge or whatever it was for Lefty. The Yankees repeated as American League champions in 1922. They did lose the World Series, but Lefty again barely played at all. He only received nine at-bats and he only pitched 16 innings all season. He actually performed well in those opportunities, so it's really a mystery why Miller Huggins refused to give O'Doul more of a chance. He did resume his good friendship with Babe Ruth. In fact, the two were followed by a private detective hired by the Yankees, who witnessed them and Bob Musil enjoying an evening at an illegal speakeasy, this being the time of prohibition. The spook turned them in, and they had to pay a fine. In July, the Yankees swung a trade with the Red Sox, something you hardly ever see nowadays. That trade involved a player to be named later, and after the season, the Yankees informed O'Doul that he was that player involved in the summer trade. A couple things happened in the offseason before Lefty made his way to Boston. On Thanksgiving Day in 1922, along with other major leaguers, he made his way to San Quentin Prison for the Prisoners' Field Day, an annual event that saw the prisoners competing in track and field events, athletic competitions, tug-of-war, you know, field day stuff. We all remember the sheer terror of field day. Now, all the prisoners at San Quentin were allowed to participate in field day, except for the seven inmates on death row, and one of the younger death row inmates who had killed a San Francisco policeman recognized his hometown hero, Lefty O'Doul, amongst the players, and he begged the guards for a chance just to play catch with Lefty. They relayed the request to the warden, who assented, and that's how Lefty O'Doul found himself on the sidelines of the San Quentin Field Day, playing catch with a man who would soon face the gallows. For some reason, that image is just very striking to me. Lefty also was on hand personally at the end of January 1923 to meet the Korea Maru, the ship returning from Japan with a team of major and minor league players who had just concluded a barnstorming tour of the country. There had been a couple of tours like this before in Japan, where baseball at this time was continuing to grow in popularity. The game had first been introduced in Tokyo by an English professor named Horace Wilson. Sorry about the pun, but it was a big hit. Within a few years, amateur clubs were forming around the city. The Meiji government would eventually hire Americans to serve as baseball oyetoi, which is the term they used for foreign experts hired by the government 
to teach a specialty in Japan after the country emerged from isolationism. So they would do this with all kinds of fields of study or research or expertise. They would just go out and hire people from other countries who knew what they were doing, and they would have them teach the Japanese how to do it. A lot of schools incorporated baseball into their physical education curriculum, and as the years went on, they would organize teams, and they would start to play against other schools. A former player named Herb Hunter recognized the unfilled demand and the potential for profit, so he started to organize these tours of the nation, which were a resounding success, even with a bunch of players the Japanese had never heard of. Lefty was fascinated by the exotic birds and the camel's hair coats that his friends and acquaintances had brought back from Japan. And it was something that made an impression on him, something he wouldn't forget. The stories that he heard about the Japanese people's outrageous enthusiasm for baseball. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, he's... I mean... A lot of ground has been covered. I feel like we need to start from the top, Okay. first of all. Sure. You said it was like a movie... How his life was, yeah. you know, or yeah. just like the girl, did, you know. She had another suitor, had so another I went to the suitor. game, and wouldn't you know it, the hurler was ill. And then they just offered me to be the pitcher. You hey, know? you in the stands. Hey, you. You look handsome and white. <laughs> Come on up here. Look at that boy with a golden arm. That was a woman who was his teacher, right? Mm-hmm. Taught him. That was just like interesting to me, just because this was in the early 1900s. Yeah. Agreed. Like that, that a woman would be someone you look up to? Just yeah. very interesting to me. I know. She was quite, uh, she later became the principal of the school. She seems like quite a lady. Rose Stalls. Just wanted to give her, those students the opportunity to play the game. So she just learned from scratch how to play baseball and freaking coached a future major leaguer. That's really amazing. interesting. So on another topic, mm. um, how dumb do you think the Red Sox felt after they sold Babe Ruth? For what to fund the no no Nanette? Yes, show? Babe Ruth being one of the the baseball players that even you've heard of, of course. It's the only one I know. And <laughs> <laughs> you don't know no no Nanette, huh? No, no, we actually like just googled it. Yeah, looking up the plot of no no Nanette, it says personable Nanette helps her philandering millionaire uncle Jimmy out of several embarrassing situations with beautiful women he's promised careers to. Oh. <laughs> autobiographical <laughs> so yeah harry Frazee, the owner of the red sox supposedly under intense pressure from his wife who really wanted to get the show done he sold babe ruth for some extra cash so oh he could fund the God. show like imagine it was how... a big hit frankly yeah but imagine how like pissed the husband was she's like you promised me to play and he's like god damn it i wanted to get rid of my best guy look what happened <laughs> yeah that's uh considered the all-time blunder in baseball history, for sure. I mean, the, the Red Sox didn't win the World Series, of course, for like 80 years afterwards, and it was called the Curse of the Bambino. Because oh. it was because they got rid of Babe Ruth, so they were cursed. Yeah, I do remember you talking about that curse. Mm. But Babe Ruth, you said, was friends with him, right? And like showed him around town. Yes, and yeah, like... showed him a bit of the nightlife. He was friends with everyone. Lefty? So, yeah. Sheila. Like yeah. going, um, the story about going to the horse races and yes. not even being noticed at all during the double. Yeah, Miller Huggins never even noticed he was gone because he never even thought about putting him in the game. That's how I feel in life. Jeez. Oh. <laughs> Goodness. What's really going on oh, lately? <laughs> We're just going to ignore that and now go right back to the story. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Cry for help ignored. <laughs> Okay, uh, so 
So Japan. Yes. When it opened up its borders, mm-hmm. um, we were just talking about how um, the en- Edo. The Edo period period. ended in 1868, hundreds of years of of like literally no contact with outside countries for Japan. Right. Before that. How, so we brought over like things like science and different things, but we also brought baseball. Yes. More importantly. Right. So my question is, what do you think like the other countries brought to them? Like, because we went, I mean, baseball is like the the uniquely American. We brought them baseball and apple pie. The French brought croissants and... Uh, pretentious Indians literature cr- cricket? and like, the Germans brought of course lighthearted humor as the lighthearted humor. <laughs> okay I'm looking forward to see where the story goes now okay yeah let's get back to it okay so like we said before the break as the result of a trade Lefty was now shipping up to Boston but his time there would sadly prove no more satisfying than his tenure in New York he clashed with his manager Frank Chance and his contributions to the club's social life were probably more notable than his contributions to their performance on the field. He did, however, set a major league record in Boston, one that still stands, astoundingly, a century later. On July 7th, he entered a game against the Cleveland Indians as a reliever and surrendered 16 runs, the most ever by a reliever. 13 in one inning, again, a record. The arm injury Lefty had suffered with the Yankees in 1919 meant that he was not really a major league quality pitcher anymore. His shoulder just could not generate the velocity that it once did. But during this absolute hellish barrage, Lefty several times walked around the mound. He would stare into the dugout waiting for his manager to come get him. But Frank Chance never did. O'Doul would later claim that he was being punished for missing curfew the night before. It was another forgettable year in the majors for the young O'Doul. And after the season, he was headed back to the Pacific Coast League, this time to the Salt Lake City Bees. His manager this time was his former Yankee teammate, Duffy Lewis, a guy who, while in New York with Lefty, had lobbied Miller Huggins to give O'Doul more playing time. He believed in him, though not necessarily as a pitcher moving forward. This was like fate intervening in Lefty's life. Getting to play for Duffy Lewis was exactly what he needed. Lewis had a plan for Lefty. He wanted him in no small part because he liked his personality and he knew how good he was for team morale. But he also believed Lefty could be a star if he just converted to outfield full-time and gave up on the pitching. But O'Doul still wanted to take the mound. Duffy's plan was to let him, knowing that with his shoulder injury, O'Doul became fatigued quicker than most and that pitching in the thin air of Salt Lake City would only compound the problem. So he would let O'Doul suffer until he came to the conclusion himself. Lewis's plan worked to perfection. By the time July rolled around, Lefty had an ERA of almost six runs a game. He hated pitching in Salt Lake, later complaining, quote, What a city for pitchers. With the mile-high altitude, somebody hits a ball and it sails out of the park on wings, unquote. O'Doul did hit well in his starts and in the occasional pinch-hitting appearance, however. That same July, his batting average was an even 400. When a rash of injuries hit the Bs, Lewis convinced Lefty to become an everyday outfielder, and finally, Frank O'Doul was ready to give up on the pitching. Once inserted as an outfielder, he was in the lineup every day, and my goodness, what a success he was. He collected four hits on August 6, including a go-ahead three-run ninth-inning homer. He hit three more home runs and drove in eight against his hometown Seals a few days later. One week after that, He had a hit in eight straight at-bats in a doubleheader against Los Angeles, going six for six in the first game. During the month between September 9th and October 9th, 
He went 57 for 116, one hit shy of a 500 average for the month. He did make one more emergency pitching appearance for the Bees, and it did not whet his appetite for further work on the mound. Four and two-thirds innings. He gave up 19 hits and 10 runs. He later claimed, actually repeatedly throughout the rest of his life, I don't know if this is a joke, he said that during that game, someone hit a homer off of him one-handed, and he said, oh, you know, I think I shouldn't do this anymore. Lefty finished 1924 as the PCL batting champion with a 392 average. The conversion to full-time outfielder was a wild, wild success. Not only did he hit for a high average, but Odul flashed real power as well with 31 doubles and 11 bombs. 1925 would prove no different. He was hitting 500 a dozen games into the season. In July, he had a 6-for-6 game, then he did it again two days later. At one point in that same month, he had a hit in nine consecutive at-bats, the last a home run that sent the game to extra innings. He made an out in his next at-bat, and he followed that up with 10 consecutive hits and 10 at-bats. Like, what? And we have to mention, of course, the offense in the PCL at this time, and really for its entire existence, even up to this day, it's heavily inflated. It's definitely tilted towards the offense. Hall of Famer Tony Lazari was lefty's teammate with the Bees that season, and he would knock in 222 runs. Still the all-time organized record. So these numbers have to be taken with a grain of salt for sure. And keep in mind also that Lefty O'Doul at this point is 28 years old, which is definitely old for a minor leaguer. His uh, experiments with pitching uh, and his just kind of journeyman career bouncing up and down between the major leagues and the minors, it means that he's definitely older than a lot of the guys that he's facing. And uh, for him to get a start on a legitimate major league career, I mean, the clock's already ticking. But when it came to pure hitting, no doubt Lefty O'Doul was the class of the Pacific Coast League. His lifestyle changed. You know, he had gotten married. He quieted down some. The Yankees actually had a scout watching O'Doul for four weeks in 1925, and the scout reported back that the outfielder was home by 6 o'clock every night. Unfortunately, Lefty would fracture his elbow in a doubleheader against Seattle, which meant he wouldn't be picked up by a major league team at the end of this season. The injury hurt his numbers a little bit the following year in 1926. His average dropped all the way down to 338. But he was the biggest star in the league, and there was much fanfare in 1927 when O'Doul was traded back to the San Francisco Seals, his hometown team, and really the signature franchise of the PCL. And being back home left, he was excited. The town was excited. He was a big local celebrity man. You know, but honestly, it was beyond that with Lefty in San Francisco. It was a romance. And 1927 would prove to be magical, like a fairy tale. He started off the season with a 19-game hitting streak. He Again, he would go on these ridiculous tears, multi-hit games, and 13 of 14 at one point, a 24 for 42 stretch in early summer. But beyond that, with his signature charm and his approachability around town, he was winning more fans than ever. As the season wore on, the left-field bleachers were increasingly taken over by kids, all kids, and a lot of them from the old neighborhood, Bayview. Lefty would do everything he could in the outfield, to delight these kids. He would sneak baseballs to the outfield in his pockets, and he would throw them up to the kids five or six at a time. They would yell out these cheers, like these planned cheers, and he would yell back and play his part in the cheers. The kids organized an official Lefty O'Doul fan club, and all members received a button with the outfielder's face on it. It really went beyond even that, though. When he wasn't at the park, Lefty was making regular visits to Bayview Grammar School, his old stomping grounds, where, like we said earlier, Rose Stalls, the teacher who had meant so much to him, was now the principal. It was said he always had a treat in his pocket for the school's dog mascot, Old Bayview Bill. 
He would give lectures to the kids. He would play ball games with them. They freaking loved him. It became the tradition at Bayview Grammar School after saying the Pledge of Allegiance to face in the direction of the Seal Stadium and let out a big cheer in honor of Lefty. <laughs> I just, dude, just picturing that is so sweet. Midway through the season, the phenomenon of Lefty's popularity had grown to the point that preparations began for a Lefty O'Doul day. But the man himself, of course, was not interested in that. He wanted instead to make it an official kids' day at Recreation Park because at this point we're in full Jimmy Stewart movie territory. And as soon as he started to voice this idea of having a kids' day at Recreation Park, a lot of people jumped on board and started to organize this day to celebrate the kids of San Francisco. Do you think I'm making this up because it's so impossibly heartwarming? Well, I'm not. This actually happened. And if you were a kid who loved baseball in the summer of 1927, I think San Francisco, California had to be about the best place on earth you could possibly be. So like I say, the city got into this. The San Francisco Chronicle agreed to supply baseballs and miniature bats to every kid who showed up for the game. The paper also started taking up a collection because even though Lefty wanted it to be about the kids, a lot of people did want to give the man himself a token of their appreciation. And I mean a lot of people. Eventually, they collected almost $2,000 and they printed the names of everyone who sent money. That included a bunch of local celebrities, uh, boxers, ball players, a couple local mobsters, some prisoners from San Quentin. My man had friends all over. It was announced that O'Doul was going to take the mound for Kids Day, which was a surprise. It had been three years since his last start. But the big day arrived and the standing room only signs went up at Recreation Park. The kids poured in and honestly, at first it was mayhem. The kids just spilled out onto the field. They took over the infield. They're running around in the dugout, swinging the players' bats. Uh, Lefty is riding around on a horse, tossing miniature bats to children. Eventually, order is restored, and O'Doul takes the mound. Nobody, frankly, expects him to do that well, not having pitched in three years, and at first, it did not look good. He surrendered a leadoff double, then an error put two men on with no outs. But then Lefty got a strikeout, and he coaxed a double play. In the bottom of the inning, he came up, and he hit a double to the wall, and the place just absolutely shook. And you can imagine the delirium of adulation these kids must have held Lefty O'Doul in at this point. Meanwhile, on the mound, he retired the side in order in the second and the third. In the fourth, he gave up a lead single, but the man was quickly erased, doubled up on a fly ball. And that was it, as far as hits. In a game where even his manager was only hoping to get perhaps four innings out of him, O'Doul went the distance, throwing a two-hit shutout as the Seals won 3-0. After the game, Lefty climbed up to the roof of the grandstand and he threw 500 baseballs that he had autographed before the game down to the kids in the bleachers below. To say that he was a hero in San Francisco at this point, I don't think it quite captures it. I think with a day like this, you officially move into legend status. And indeed, he was a legend in San Francisco. Lefty's 1927 season was one of the greatest in minor league history. Now, keeping in mind that Lefty played in 189 of the 195 games the Seals played that year. Listen to these stats. 33 homers, 158 RBIs, 40 stolen bases, 278 hits, 164 runs, and a 378 average. He was named MVP of the Pacific Coast League, and he had the trophy presented to him by none other than Lou Gehrig in a ceremony before an exhibition game of All-Stars headed up between Gehrig and Babe Ruth. Lefty would bat second on Ruth's team throughout the postseason tour, and his performance there would further prove that he belonged among the Major League's best. Circling back now for a moment to Japan. 
As we mentioned, the thirst for baseball in the country was intense, and a couple tours of American players had been organized. Within the country, though, there, there were no minor leagues. There's no major leagues. A few universities would form regional leagues, and the national high school championships attracted hundreds and hundreds of teams. But that was the extent of baseball in Japan, really. A semi-pro team known as the Shibora Association formed in 1920. By 1923, they had played a few games against some other local higher-level teams, but the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923, a century ago exactly, knocked out their facilities and pretty much put an end to the team. So for a Japanese kid at this time, no matter how good you are at the game, you're done playing by like 21, 22. These tours are a great thing, but the fact is that most Japanese don't have access to quality facilities, equipment, and especially training and instruction. This is a country that's still emerging from the strict isolationist policy of the Edo period, and much of the population of Japan, especially the younger population of Japan, they're eager for the cultural imports they're encountering now for the first time. You know, stuff's new. It's exciting. It's also the greatest game on earth when you're talking about baseball. There's a lot of students in Japan, and there's not enough teachers. That story and the story of Lefty Duel will intersect in our next episode, part two, our finale on Lefty Duel. Oh, what a sweet guy. <laughs> yeah, he was. Yeah. Nice story. Almost impossibly sweet. I thought for a moment there, when he went back and you mentioned his teacher. Miss so Stalls, yeah. Yeah, I thought some old flame was going to come uh, back. Or oh. Something like <laughs> <laughs> some flame from when he was in grammar school. I mean, you The first never, time around. You never know. Oh, it's like full Emmanuel Macron vibes. The president of France. Did you know that? That he's, the Emmanuel Macron is married yes. to his high school teacher? Yeah. What a lovely story. When he was like 14, he's like, I am going to one day and marry you. <laughs> <laughs> I do, yeah. You're like a really yeah. greasy French guy. Yeah. Always speaking English in a French accent. Anyway. Exactly. Yes, but a very sweet story. Always having those treats for Bayview Bill. Yeah. In his, in the his mascot guy? Mascot, the mascot uh, dog. We should clarify. <laughs> it was a dog? Like an actual dog? Yes, Bayview Bill was an actual canine. Oh, Not a man like I an adult. It was a guy in a suit. <laughs> okay, serious question. Mm. Do you think it was hard for him to give up pitching? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it definitely seemed like it was, despite the results not being great. I mean, it's really hard to be great at two different things, though. I mean, he's no Shohei Otani. Oh, look at you. I wrote it down so I knew how to pronounce it. Uh, oh, okay. Well, that's fine. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, like everybody marvels at Shohei Otani because being such a great hitter and such a great pitcher, it's like unbelievable. Like you say, like being legitimately great at what are basically like two completely different skills. And it makes you such a valuable player, obviously. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess just it was tough for him to accept that he couldn't quite do it. But once he focused full time on hitting, I mean, he became an absolute sensation. And then, you know, later on, because he did and because he went to the back to the majors and became a star and, and, and did so much work in Japan. Years later, someone like Shohei Otani can come along, be born in Japan, and there's already a baseball infrastructure in place to develop them into like one of the greatest players of all time. And so, like, in a way, actually, Shohei Otani is a reminder of the legacy of people like Lefty O'Doul. So you're saying that he's the reincarnation of Lefty O'Doul. Yeah. 
You've heard it here first, folks. <laughs> that was the message I was trying to get across, absolutely. <laughs> All right, before the nonsense goes on any further, we're going to go ahead and wrap things up. Appreciate everyone for listening, as always. Honey, appreciate your help and contributions. And uh, we've learned not to make promises on when these next episodes are going to come out. So we'll just say Never. it will be here before baby number two in April. And that is all. <laughs> all right, thanks, guys. See you next time.